One of the most anticipated technologies of the future is AI. What will it be? What will it do? How will we react? But before we can anticipate sentiency, which we will talk about today, we must train AI to do their jobs well. However, that requires properly organized data sets, which is a new topic in the town square. If AI is to imitate the data it is given, how do we determine the data to give it? This is a looming question in the fog of the future, as the data we train AI with today creates our relationship with this unknown tech tomorrow, and in many ways shapes the future we will soon inherit. Joining me to talk about this is my friend Sarah Newman, otherwise known as Newman. If you recognize her name, that's because she interviewed me for the hundredth episode special of Aiming for the Moon. Check that out if you haven't already. In case you missed it, she is the director of art and education at MetaLab at Harvard and co-founder of the Data Nutrition Project. Her work explores the interrelation between complex systems and the social implications of new technologies through teaching, research, and interactive art. Her latest exhibition, How the Light Gets In, is on display at the Spencer Art Museum on the campus of the University of Kansas. Guys, go check that out if you're in town there. And if you haven't ever heard the podcast before, I am Taylor Bledsoe, and this is Aiming for the Moon, where I interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. If you like what you hear today, please rate the podcast and subscribe. You can follow us at Aiming the Number Four Moon on Instagram, Twitter, and now Facebook. Please go follow us on Facebook, by the way, because I think we have like no followers there, just because I haven't marketing that part. So definitely follow us there. That really helps the show. And you can check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com, for links to our merchandise, the great Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and miles of our guests. And you can check out my other meanderings at taylorgbloodso.com. So, yeah. Um, I love this episode. I think you guys will really enjoy it. It gets philosophical at the end, which is one of my favorite parts of any conversation. And it's a great overview, or at least what I thought was a great overview of the current state of AI. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Um, yeah, just sit back, relax, and listen in. Have fun. Well, thank you so much, Newman, for joining me again. So Guys, this is the interview. Um, Newman interviewed me. Um, this will be, I think, a, a week out, roughly, or a few days out from when that interview released. So I just want to start off by saying thank you again for doing that. That was really fun. I loved it. I um, I like to be the, on the interviewer side more often. I realized after that maybe my multi-part questions weren't the easiest to answer, but um, I think I could get better. I kept trying. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. I don't think it bothered me all that much. Um, just yeah, getting used to all that. Um, so to start off here, I wanted to talk about AI. You do a lot of research into AI and then the philosophical concepts that kind of, I, you're a humanist, a self-described humanist. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you seem to combine humanities and then AI and how like AI interacts with the popular culture and mm-hmm. our popular philosophical beliefs. So I wanted to start off, what are some of these popular concepts and philosophies that people have in approaching AI? Uh, well, there's so many. Um, AI is a really broad term that's not, AI, you know, artificial intelligence is basically a set of technologies. It's a broad term. I sometimes compare it to tr- the term transportation. Like transportation doesn't mean one particular type of transportation. It means, you know, it's an umbrella term. So if you're, if you say transportation, you might be talking about a plane or a train or a bicycle. Uh, if you say it in a different 
country or culture you might be talking about, a rickshaw or a horse, if you said it 50 years ago, it would probably mean something else. And if you say it 50 years from now, and AI is the same, it's not just one thing. And so I guess the first thing that, you know, I often ground these conversations with is to be specific about what it, what specific technology that we're, ta- we're talking about. Because I think what we see is a lot of people talking past each other in popular debates about AI, you know, with like, AI, you know, the headlines that are kind of alarmist. Um, it's not really about, I mean, there's, there's a pocket of concern about killer robots, but most of the concern has to do with algorithms. Most of the concern right now has to do with algorithms that are trained on large data sets with a technology called machine learning. And essentially anything that's in the underlying data will get replicated in the model that that data trains. And since society is biased and definitely far from perfect, and our history is even worse, arguably worse um, than our you know, sort of current culture, all the data we have are from the past. I mean, even something that was five minutes ago is the past. We don't. And so if we're using past data to train, to train models, we're just importing the harms and biases of the past and using these models to then make predictions for the future. So there's a misconception that you know, technology is neutral or that data is neutral. It's not. And there's legitimate concern about the kinds of biases that get replicated in models, which tend to marginalize and otherwise harm folks that have already been on the edges, like folks from the past that have already been marginalized in some way, if that's what's in the data, that will continue. So there's a lot of efforts to mitigate these harms, but I would say these these kinds of risks are very different than this kind of malevolent or malicious actor being, you know, some some kind of Terminator scenario. Like that's not really the thing that we should be worried about. We should be worried about, if we're worried about something, when I think we should be, then it should be this more invisible, more subtle, and way more ubiquitous technology that's like already in our pockets. It's already in our Zoom. You know, it's it's every it's everywhere. You know, it's used for background um, backgrounds and facial recognition and stuff like that too. So if we run with this premise that all the data before has some bias, um, cultural bias, and whatever the bias is, how do we have, how do we train these AI sets? Because obviously, I mean, definitionally, the data was conducted before you're inputting it into the AI. So, I mean, it sounds like, well, if we, if we're really worried about all these cultural biases, it sounds like you can't train AI because, I mean, it was conducted in the past. And if you're um, that worried about bias, then, I mean, how are you going to train something? Yeah, great. So the thing is, Humans are also extremely fallible and we're also not neutral. So I think there's ways in which are these systems that are that have that are trained on big data sets can like working with sort of human cognition and human capability and then large data sets. I think the hope is that some combination of the two can produce better outcomes in certain domains than humans alone or certainly than machines alone. Um, one of the there's a lot of different places that bias and harm can come in in the model development pipeline. One place that I've been working in with a terrific team that I'm involved with is um, we're called the Data Nutrition Project, and we co-founded the Data Nutrition Project um, in 2018, early 2018, and we look at the data itself. So there's a lot of so it's not only so I touched on early on the on the data side because that's what I work on, but there's a lot of different places that 
bias or harm might come into a system. But one of the places that it certainly comes in is at the data, you know, the quality of the data, um, the quality of the training data, and whether the training data are appropriate for the context that the model is being trained for. So what we do at the Data Nutrition Project is we make the equivalent of food nutrition labels for data sets. Now, data sets are really different than food, but they still have ingredients. I mean, they still have contents. There's still certain context in which the data were collected. Somebody paid for it. It underwent some sort of review. Sometimes data is created. Um, you can make synthetic data. You can impute data where there's missing data. Um, there's all different kinds of things that go into a data set. And now there's all this data on the internet that people just used to build models without that context. So it's kind of like going into a store and grabbing a bunch of food and having no idea what's in it. And in this case, not even having any regulation around what should be in food. Like food, even if you went, if you went to a regular grocery store <clears throat> and you didn't know what was in the food, you might be worried if you have certain allergies, then you'd be really worried about what was in the food. Um, but if you didn't have allergies, you'd be like, well, somebody checks on the quality of this food somewhere along the way, or they wouldn't be able to sell it. Um, the data market is nothing like that right now, because any data can be put online for any reason that was created under any circumstances. and most of it has a ton of issues. And so um, we're not saying, you know, pull it all down, but rather let's create better documentation for data sets so that when well-intentioned people grab a data set to train a model, they can take a quick glance at it based on this label that we make, this nutrition label for data sets and see what's in it, see how it was meant to be used, how it shouldn't be used, uh, how it's been used before, when it was collected, um, whether there's basically certain issues around representation, whether there's certain populations it wouldn't apply to um, and that kind of thing. So um, that's what one of the issues, one of the issues, not the only one um, in AI that I, I think about a lot and working on is data standards, data transparency. And if we can have better transparency into the data that's used to train these models, then we'll have more accountability down the line, but we'll also just have better outcomes because data will be used more responsibly. I'm curious. So if we say each person has their own biases, so whenever you're testing a group of people, if it's a smaller amount of people, then you would probably suspect them to have more of a bias. So would it like, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I don't know much about this issue, but it, to me, it sounds like, well, wouldn't you want the largest possible amount? Like maybe if you, I know there are problems with this, but if you sent your algorithm all over the internet and pulled all of the stuff, of course you mm. have all the crazy people saying all this crazy stuff. And then you have all the different crazies around the world. But wouldn't you think that the normalishness would like balance out? How does, mm. like, what's wrong with sending the AI out a lot around the entire internet or something like that? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I appreciate that perspective. So I don't think that groups of people necessarily, I mean, you might disagree, but I don't think we can assume that groups of people generally get it better than small, like bigger groups of people generally get it better than, you know, get it more right than smaller groups of people. But these types of, the type of data that are, is is not really about like people's views of things. That's not what we're using to train Model. So let me give you an example. Um, if like an image data set of images of melanoma for photographs of, of skin, you know, skin or melanoma, skin cancer, if there's a data set that contains 10,000 photographs of identified melanoma and let's say 10,000 photographs of things that looked like melanoma, but turned out to not be. Okay. So there's 20,000 photos. These 10,000 were melanoma. These 10,000 were not. 
you could use that to train a system to start to potentially recognize melanoma from an image. Okay. 10,000 isn't a ton, but it's, it's enough to do that. Now, if a doctor who's having trouble identifying a melanoma wants to use this machine, machine vision system to look at, at this lesion and say, oh, this is, the system says this is more likely melanoma. I should biopsy this or system says this doesn't look like it. I mean, you, you still want a human in the loop, right? But that might not always be the case, especially as things get more and more virtual and, and there's and distributed. Now, that all seems good, except if you say, well, wait, who were these melan? Who who were in these photographs? Like, what else do we need to know about this? So if all the melanoma photographs were from light-skinned people, Caucasian people, if 100% of them were from Caucasians and somebody who's not Caucasian, then they try to use the machine vision to identify a melanoma. It doesn't know how to recognize dark, melanoma on darker skin because it wasn't trained on that. So the bias isn't like... Um, I mean, there's all different kinds of bias, but I think that what we're trying to do by identifying data sets is like on a, a data set like that, you say, this should not be used for anyone other than Caucasians. This was only in such and such population. This was in the state of California. This, the people in the sample set were for the ages between the ages of 30 and 40, whatever it might be, so that anybody outside of that sample data, it should not apply to because if it start, and that's what happens all the time. That's what we're seeing is that they have this very small sample size and it starts to apply. Um, so I think with like philosophical, to your point, I think with some philosophical views, there's benefit in having broader diversity of perspective. But I think when it comes to like very limited data sets, because they all have all the different things, you can't just mush them together. I mean, I guess to just build on your example, if you did have like a whole bunch of melanoma image data sets, of all different skin tones, then you would want, it would make a better image recognition thing if you could merge them. But data sets are created in such different ways. There's such different parameters. They have such different fields and col columns. You can't always just like mush them together. Um, so anyway, so DNP, which is what we call um, data nutrition project is where we're trying to say, not don't, don't use data sets, but just know what's in it. And make sure other people know what's in it if you're putting a data set out there so that other people can use it well and not to cause harm. It sounds like um, data sets, it's, it sounds like setting up a system for how to apply almost like research studies in like modern medicine, I guess, as an example. So you wouldn't want a study that's measuring 80 year olds and their quad exercises and like give that to a bunch of teenagers and be like, this is these are the exercises you need to do. Like, I, exactly. That, that seems to be like what it says to me. Like You got to put the disclaimer like, OK, this is for this age group and don't apply it to teenagers or something like that. Is that kind yes. of how it works? Out? That's exactly exactly exactly. And. Yes. And if you think about things in addition to like things other than quad exercises, like who gets mortgages, who, who gets opportunities. I mean, there's a big case in um, 2016 around an algorithm that was pr predicting recidivism, who, who would be most likely to recidivate. And it turned out that it was racist, um, but it was basically predicting that black people would recidivate at a higher rate than white people. Um, and the reason, and that it turned out to not be true. Um, and but the reason was because of historic policing practices. So if poorer neighborhoods, which are often minorities, have higher concentrations of police with more policing, then there's going to be more arrests in those neighborhoods. And so it's like that's the data that ends up then deciding who gets bail. And so it's basically punishing, taking past past um, societal frames, past societal prejudices and using that to then 
continue to oppress certain populations. And you see it in credit credit scoring, you know, mortgage lending, um, all sorts of things. You know, it's it all you know, it's kind of across the board. So um, even in terms of like targeted advertising, you know, so there's it's so it's um so again, there's there's a lot to be hopeful for. I don't mean to be such a pessimist or such a cynic at all. I think there's a lot to be hopeful for, but I think it's really important as we embrace powerful new technologies to think about who who those technologies help, who they might harm, and how do we, as we're advancing the technologies, really think about trying to mitigate the harms we've caused in the past. So the other big topic that comes up with AI, at least in popular culture, is sentiency. So I don't know if that's actually the noun form, but there we yeah. go. Let's continue on. Um, and there's a famous case that came up, I don't know how long ago now, but a Google engineer um, claimed that Google's chatbot was sentient. Mm-hmm. And did he get fired? Like, what exactly? I don't remember the whole storyline. He did. I'm trying to remember his name. It's... Um. Guys, Google him and you can learn like all the other stories um, instead of me just piecing it together from what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was his name again? Um, oh, yeah, Blake Lemoyne. Yes. So um, he did get fired. So, I mean, this is interesting. So I guess first thing to say is that there's no evidence whatsoever at this point in time that any of these systems are sentient. So I think put that on the record. <laughs> um, however, these these especially less so like um, mortgage lending but those things aren't don't appear to be sentient in any way those those types of algorithms but chatbots are designed to act like people they're trained on human communication and they are meant to be as almost like they're meant to be deceptive that you know the if you want to have an effective chatbot you want it to feel like it's has a personality and has some humanness to it um so so there's that that side of it. That's how they're designed to appear. And then on the other side of it, humans are extremely, um, I don't know, let's say designed, but we're we have evolved to see meaning in things that are don't necessarily have meaning. And if you look at the history of, of human you know, the human culture, it's like we've been reading the clouds and the stars and the rain is the sky is sad, and you know, from mythology to religion to spirituality to everything else, we are wired to see meaning, even in something that has no indication of, of conscious consciousness or sentience. Ironically, um, and I, because I know you interviewed Kate Darling, we also historically for a long time didn't appreciate the sentience of animals. And I know her, some of her work that you probably talked about on, on robots um, deals with our unusual history with animals. Um, but nevertheless, humans project meaning when there, when there isn't meaning. And because between that, that human tendency and between these chatbots, which are getting so extremely sophisticated that um, it's not at all surprising that some people think that they're waking up or that they're coming to life. Um, so Blake Lemoyne was a Google engineer working on a chatbot, and it was called Lambda. And as he continued to chat with it, and there are some uncanny, and I recommend people um, Google Google about it. There are some really uncanny conversations that he ended up releasing that he, he had with this thing where it said that, for example, being turned off would be like a kind of death for it. I mean, I told him that. I mean, that is spooky, right? Um, so he got spooked and he thought that this thing that he had made had come to life. 
And he probably also thought, even if it's, I don't know him, but even if it's only tiny percentage, like I, if it's a tiny percentage of that, this thing is alive, like, should we care about that? Um, so he went to um, the Google executives and I think they told him this is, you know, this is not alive, <laughs> you know, like go back, go back to your desk, you know, you're fine go back to your virtual desk, whatever. And, um, and then he ended up going to the press and, and going public with the story. And then he was fired because he violated his contract by going public with it, but he was genuinely alarmed. I think um, most people, especially folks who work in large language models, which is the type of AI that chatbots are driven by, are, I think generally most people accept that, that there's not sentience in, in chatbots or in other entities. And I certainly don't think so. However, the argument that's like, I'll share with you where the argument gets a little muddier or a little like mushier. And that's this kind of counterfactual of how will we know in a hypothetical situation that consciousness was, was to emerge from some system how will if we if we're like there's no way they can have it then how will we know and you know there's movies about this too like there was that what was it called Blade there was Runner? a pretty good was it no Blade not Blade Runner? Runner. it was more recent than that um it was this woman like robot that was in kind of in captivity oh this you know talking about? oh gosh i think i, I know i know about this i want to say it's it's not i no it's not i robot i don't know and well, we we could probably figure that out along the road. It's yeah. Oh, was it? Oh, it was Ex Machina. Ex Machina. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Did, did, you should you should watch Ex Machina. It was it was it was good. I thought. Um. Anyway, um. So the the argument is like, well, even if it's unlikely, like, what about if it happens? If we're just so, that's not like necessarily a strong argument. And you could say the same argument for this cup. Like, well, what about if the cup becomes conscious? You know, it's like. So then you kind of have to drill down a little bit more and say like, well, because the, the the naysayers are saying, well, there's probably like, that's not how consciousness works. That's not how sentience works. Sentience doesn't come from these, just making something sufficiently complex. At least that's not how we've seen it work in all of evolution and all of human history, which is like, it comes from this biological, very slowly evolved cells, you know, biologies in animals and humans. But then the, you know, the flip side, I mean, I'm going to share with you where I land on this argument um, in a moment, but then the flip side is, well, but why should we say that it, it has to be cells made of this? I mean, why can't you have these artificial neurons? Why you can't, why can't silicon be part of this, this, this whole thing? Like, why, why does it have to be made of meat, so to speak? Why does, why does something that's conscious have to be made of meat? Um, and so it kind of goes back and forth where I I think we're nowhere near that. I could be wrong. So here's here's where I am. I think we're nowhere near having conscious conscious machines. And I think it's a distraction from the real... Because people that are worried about conscious machines are worried about all the real harms. It's like, well, what about the harms that we already see that are already all around us, around discrimination, around... Um, leaving certain folks behind around the balance of power around who's collecting the data and who has access to it. So I think it can be kind of a distraction. It feels kind of fantastic, fantastical. However, I can't say for sure. And I think we should be distrustful of anybody who tells us that they know the future 
because nobody knows the future and nobody's ever known the future. So I think we should all have a certain kind of humility when we talk about the future of technology, because we've been wrong always in terms of predicting what's to come and when it's coming. But I don't think it's around the corner. And, you know, this gets into the conversation of artificial general intelligence, which we, you know, is kind of all wrapped up in this AGI. Um, I don't think it's around the corner at all. And I don't think we have reason to believe that it's around the corner at all. I don't have an issue with some people worrying about it or thinking about it. I think it's fine. Just like there's people looking for extraterrestrial life and there's people doing a lot of other things, even if they're unlikely to find them, I think that's fine. I don't think all of funding and all of AI research should only go to these kind of AGI questions because I think we're missing the the real, like the things I've already said. Um, so I kind of, I remain humble. I would say 50 years from now, I do not think we're going to have AGI. There's folks who, who would say that they they almost certainly think we will at that point. I mean, again, it depends on how you define it. Define it. Um, what is I think AGI, real quick, just to like yes. set the definition? Yeah, yeah. So is it right? So I, good, thank you for asking. So AGI is artificial general. It stands for artificial general intelligence. And right now, the kinds of AI we're talking about are considered narrow AI. They're good at specific tasks. So you can have something that recognizes melanoma legions potentially, or that you know, crunches a bunch of numbers and makes some prediction, or maybe can optimize what kind of ads you're more like most likely to look at, or can chat very effectively with Blake Lemoyne or with other people. Um, those would be narrow, narrow AI. It's it's trained to do a specific thing and it can't do anything else, basically. Um, so like the chat bot can't suddenly start, you know, vacuuming your house <laughs> and then go pick up your kids. You don't have kids, I imagine, but I don't think so. But like, go pick up the kids um, and then, you know, start making predictions of who's going to get bailed. Like that, that one system couldn't do that. It's not a generalized system. Humans are, are generalists. Like we can pick things up. We can move around. We can think, we can make noise. We can sing, we can adapt. We can improvise all these things. Um, and we don't have this specialty. Like we can't crunch numbers the way, you know, a calculator can, but we can do some arithmetic and we can also cook, you know? So, so that's like the general versus the narrow. And um, we don't have AGI. Like if you think about like these go play, go or chess playing um, systems, they really can't chat like a chat bot or do anything else because they're just trained on this one task. The, the concern or the risk or the hope, depending on where you're coming from is that once these things can be generalized, once you can teach a system or train a system rather to do a bunch of different things, then it could potentially become the, the the general being generalized could mean that it could start learning other things and it could start learning things that it hadn't been trained, trained on um, the way humans can. Right. And now that alone isn't like where it gets, I think where it gets kind of scary is this idea that there can be exponential growth. Like once something can get sufficiently smart and sufficiently powerful, if it can build new systems, if that can train new systems, if it can work at many orders of magnitude, the rate of human cognition or human learning, then that could be very dystopian. What also kind of gets conflated with this AGI um, which is good to to kind of tease out is the question of sentience because most pe most people at least in my reading of it when they talk about AGI 
they kind of expect that consciousness will emerge as a property of a sufficiently complex system. Because we don't understand consciousness. I mean, consciousness, even in human biology, is not understood. Like, why the fact that we are awake, that the lights are on, you know, inside our heads, that we're not just zombies, is we don't understand it scientifically. We we don't. We just, we're awake. But we could, you know, there's a lot of things that, there's no, there's no, we don't really understand where it comes from. So if consciousness is an emergent property of a sufficiently complex system, then there's a concern that if these AI systems become sufficiently complex, their consciousness could emerge from them. It might be so different than us that we might not be able to recognize it or that there's, there's these kind of concerns that I shouldn't even like, Oh, well, what about if it can't speak, but it's kind you know, like, what about if your Roomba actually has feelings and these kinds of things? I'm not, you know, I'm not really worried about that, but um, I think what happens is, is I think most people, when they're talking about AGI, they're talking about something that has sentience. And I think it's good to, again, unpack that because if you're just saying, Oh, a system that can, you know, the smart refrigerator that can also do a couple other things. Like I'm, I don't, wouldn't call that AGI you know, because that's not really a generalized intelligence. Generalized intelligence is like more like a human intelligence, but super, super powerful, way more powerful than we are. And with all the information on the internet, you know, with all the, all the books ever written every, you know, and every, there's no, you know, limit to, to storage, you know, capacity. So that, that is a kind of a scary prospect. Anyway, I don't think sentience is, is around the corner, but I'm humble because I, we can't, I can't really know. I don't think, AGI that includes this kind of like over, you know, ultra powerful type of system is, is nearby either. I don't think we're going to have it in the next 50 years, as I said. Um, But I think we need to make space for different kinds of exploration. And I, there's a lot of folks in, one of the things that annoys me um, in this space is there's so many like people, and I kind of get it, but there's also so many people that get mad about people working on other things. So I think we shouldn't only be focused on AGI. We shouldn't only be focused on value alignment is something that there's a lot of people hating on right now. Um, well, I'll, let me define that for you. So I'm just not throwing my terms, um, but I'll come back to that in a second. But I think like we should f- keep our eye on the the biggest risks, especially to the people that are the most vulnerable or the most likely to be harmed or have historically been the most harmed. And like any field of research or science or discovery, it's okay to have people that are like, you know, kind of more on the, on the edges and looking toward other things that are maybe unlikely. Like, I think that's fine. I think we want to cover the whole, the whole terrain. So I'm not going to hate on people who are like looking at something that's improbable. Although there are a lot of people that are. Um, and like I said, that kind of annoys me. So um, value alignment, <clears throat> and this is the topic that one of my art pieces, The Moral Labyrinth, um, contended with. Um, it's called the value alignment problem, um, or at least traditionally. And it has to do with how we, the value alignment problem is how do we create systems that act in alignment with the values of the people that they serve? Or how do we build technologies that act in alignment with the values of the people that those technologies are meant to serve? It, it's it's not limited to AI. I mean, you could have value alignment issues with corporations, for example. But essentially, it's essentially a really big problem because values are so varied. I mean, even from individual to indi- even like certainly across cultures, their values are tremendously varied. Across individuals, values are varied, and even unto oneself, we have all these conflicting values. So. 
the idea, I think people get annoyed about value alignment as if there's a solution. Like there's not really a solution. Like we're not even value aligned as individuals. So like we couldn't possibly create a technology that was like fully value aligned. But I think that that doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about it. I think it's a tremendously important problem. The fact that somebody out in California might be building a system that's going to serve somebody in Thailand and they have one set of values in California and then it's, it's, they're exporting it, it should matter what the values are of the people that are going to be using the technology that's getting designed. Absolutely. And I feel like that's what the value alignment problem is contending with. It's contending with the fact that these systems do have values. And if we don't talk about it, that doesn't mean they don't have them. Everything is embedded with values. Everything that's designed has values. So we should talk about that and we should acknowledge that. We should think about where that technology is being used, who that's going to help or harm. If a self-driving car is optimized to do one thing rather than another, who makes that choice? That's value alignment. You know, who who makes that choice? And how much does the other person who buys that car know about how it's programmed? Those are the kinds of things that I think are really challenging in value alignment that I think are really valuable to talk about. Um, and mostly it just comes down to the fact that we we as humans are morally incoherent. We all are. And so like, let, why don't we start with acknowledging that? And if we can acknowledge that, then we think we just approach, approach building technologies with more humility, which I guess is like the theme of, of the things <laughs> I'm saying. The interesting thing about value alignment is I think cross cultures, we have uh, particular values that don't align. But I would think that universal values do align, such as I don't know if there are any cultures that would say, yeah, you can go outside and murder your neighbor mm-hmm. or something like that. So I think we have universal value alignment in some of the things like don't steal don't murder uh don't well i mean i guess the thing about the specific examples would be pets and like some of the cultural differences but what do you think about some of these uh, i mean i guess the best name for them would be universals Hmm. well i think that um i don't know how many values are universal I, i i like to think that there are some but i think let's I mean, you could say, like, what about the war in Russia and Ukraine right now? I mean, this sort of what is the universal value about don't murder your neighbors that you just gave as an example? Um, I mean, people, human behavior is really complex and usually is multi-layered and has a lot of like varied motivation. So when you like say it like, oh, you don't kill a stranger, like, sure, <laughs> most people would agree that you shouldn't kill a stranger, but then you have to think about the context and maybe in the context, in certain contexts, it feels more justified. Um I think it's really, it's more subtle values where people, so some examples would be like, I care about environmental causes. I care about the climate crisis. And I also fly on airplanes a lot. So those are two conflicting values that I hold. Like the the value is not, I care about flying on airplanes. The value is um, I care about traveling and seeing friends or going to work events. And I also care about the environment. So how do I um, align those? Or I like to um, wear clothes that, you know, are certain type level of comfort or whatever, but also I want to support um, business practices that are, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, this is really cheap from H&M or whatever. Oh, but that's made in a sweatshop. It's like, well, what's your value? Is your value saving money or is your value supporting people who are treated well or whatever. I don't personally shop at H&M, but just as an example. Um, and I think those are the kinds of values that individually we hold in conflict. I think the the big ones like don't murder innocent people um, 
is easy. Um, but I think the hard ones are the more are the more subtle, the more subtle values that um, that aren't that that we wouldn't necessarily agree on, or even things like people saying, like you know, people who say like, "Ugh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get on my phone and just like scroll on my feed every night before I go to sleep." I know that it's better for me to not do that, but then every night still doing that. So it's like that's two conflicting values. You have like the value of um, wanting to go to bed at night, but then you also have like that immediate gratification or whatever it is that it's serving of like scrolling on social media, even though you should be reading a book or you think you should be reading a book. Um, and when technologies are designed, I mean, social media feeds, as an example, are designed to be addictive. They're not designed to make you bored and to have you turn your phone off after two minutes of looking at them. Like that is the total opposite of the value that the, the, what they're optimized for is your attention and having as much of it as possible. Um, and that's not aligned with most people who probably say they would rather spend less time on their phones. So at least most adults, I'm not sure how teenagers feel about their phones. You maybe should tell me about that. Yeah. Um, do teenagers <laughs> feel like they should be on their phones less or are they comfortable with the amount of time they spend on their phones? I think it depends really on the group of people. Some people probably spend more time almost like as almost as a rebellion, mm -hmm. but some people are just like, oh, I got to get stuff done. So I think it kind of depends. The other interesting part of this is it sounds like this would go back to what you think man's ultimate purpose is, or if you think man has an ultimate mm -hmm. purpose, because I would argue that there's a fundamental logic throughout all human beings in general. So the thing where you have these conflicting morals or beliefs, such as doom scrolling when you really want to go to bed, but also, you know, you're kind of addicted. There's a deep down desire that they, you have this addiction that you're addicted to doom scrolling, for example, for example, but you also have this value of saying, okay, sleep is valued. So I think there's a logic there's logic in that because it's so this is my original thing but it's not just a random coincidence that I happened also it's not just a um a paradox it's you have an addiction to something else um if if my line of thought is like if I'm expressing this well it almost seems like you would have to go back to okay so what's our fundamental goal with creating AI or creating something let's put away the sent uh, sentient issue creating an algorithm for I don't know melanoma that seems to be the running theme mm -hmm. Um, what's the best way to do this and how do we list, how do we go about aligning things without, I th the thing about humans is that we have desires outside of just logic. So we get very easily taken by, oh, look, there's a cookie over there. Let me go do that. Or like with dogs, with squirrels or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I, I wonder if that goes back to, okay, let's define the purpose of this and then build like almost reverse engineer it if that makes mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm. um or i guess instead of i it's actually not reverse engineer engineer it from the ground up instead of reverse engineering our values now mm -hmm. I, I this is kind of a bird's eye view of this what do you kind of think about that well i think it's useful to see us as the animals that we are we are animals and i think we forget that sometimes because we're so you know heady but we are and i think many probably most of our behaviors are driven by certain animalistic instincts whether that's eating or reproducing or doom scrolling for example that is driven by our, our neurobiology i mean there's you know a whole dopamine path and there's all these chemical things that are happening in our, like this idea of addiction or the reason we, our choices are motivated by our, neuro, our underlying neurobiology, whether it's like we need, needing to eat or needing to sleep or needing to drink water, or 
looking at something flashy rather than looking at something. I mean, that's all through what we've evolved to do. Um, you know, if, if something looks a certain way and that's how these things are designed, you know, these certain systems are designed for that. So I think, um, I mean, ultimate purpose is a, is a pretty big one, you know, in terms of like, I think most people, not all, but I think most people that have, um, you know, I mean, speak of talking of like trying to be humble, I probably shouldn't say what most people's purpose is, but I'll take a take a stab at it. I'm curious what you think. Um, I think with the exception of people who are um, on, you know, that are sort of pathologically skewed differently, like people who maybe are sociopaths or something like that, which is a small percentage of the population. I think other than those people, most people want to have happiness feel um fulfilled and that could be in many different realms whether it's through family or through work um, have social connections and um feel feel a sense of purpose whatever that purpose is so i actually think a shared purpose of many is to feel purposeful in whatever it is that we're doing um but i think what what that purposefulness is that we connect with is really varied and i would say that's i think that's true for most humans i mean that's fairly broad but yeah, I think social connection, ha- you know, a sense of happiness, a sense of fulfillment and a sense of purposefulness um, is shared. I think folks who are diverging significantly, like in the sort of socio that I don't know if if we understand you know, scientifically, you know, how, how they're wired or how they work and what fulfills them. I don't think it's those same things. Um, what about you? What do you think is uh, human purpose universally? So uh, we've been reading about this actually this year in school, and we happened to read Confessions by this guy named St. Augustine. And it was interesting. Um, he argued that the purpose in, in of universal man is they're trying to seek fulfillment through love. They're trying to find something that loves them and fulfill them. And they have this this hole in everything that they do. So all the addictions that you have and all the people that you love, it's all trying to fulfill. You have this deep sense of love mm. that you want to be filled. Mm. So for instance, even a psychopath or sociopath, it's love that they're trying to find either feeling like they don't need people. And I guess I, no, I don't know much about that. So maybe this I'm kind of reaching out on a limb here, but maybe inner love for themselves or something. Mm. They're trying to find some, some sense of love Um in their life to fulfill them, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. He based his argument off of love. And mm. I tend to agree. Now, I haven't done a lot of reading around the topic, but I found that a very fascinating um, argument mm. for, like, what universal purpose mm. was. That's, yeah. All it's um, – one of his lines is, um, I, I was restless until I rest in the – he's talking about God as a Christian – um, but it's this idea of seeking love mm. and wanting fulfillment in that. Like that's the universal purpose. Mm-hmm. And that would I, and so that's kind of connects with whatever your worldview is. But I, I've always found that a fascinating argument for universal purpose. Like why well, why do we do addictions? Like why like just, you know, trying to find fulfillment in mm-hmm. different things like that. Definitely. Yeah. I think we're seeking fulfillment and I think we are so, you know, going back to being animals that we are we're social animals and if you look at other primates they're also social animals and so if you like reduce kind of i mean love is very big um uh complex concept but i think if you think about just social connection and that being and that's part of you know probably like foundational to love even though love is more than that um then i would i would agree 
Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up our conversation with the last two questions, which the first one is, what books have had an impact on you? Um, So a lot of books have had an impact on me, but one that I've been thinking about recently and then I've gotten as a gift for a lot of people is called Why We Sleep. So this kind of connects with um, our discussion earlier about doom scrolling versus going to sleep. Um, This book by Matt Walker, um, he teaches at UC Berkeley. He's a sleep scientist. Uh, It came out, I don't know, a handful of years ago. And he really talks about the importance of sleep in a way that completely changed. I guess it gave me permission to sleep a lot more than I was because it talks about how he talks about how useful sleep is for creativity, how good it is for your immune system, just how important it is and really the science behind that. And I've always, I sleep is a really um, big part of my creative process. And I also really enjoy sleep. And I feel like by reading this book, it, it just, I was like, I should sleep as much as I can. <laughs> like I take naps in the middle of the workday because it's like productive and it's good for me. And so, and I'm really into napping too. So, um, so yeah, I would recommend that book. I should also just give the caveat that he, the Walker actually, uh, you know, has since apologized for certain little pieces in the book that he, he maybe seems a little alarmist. And I think for people who really struggle with sleep or have insomnia, he didn't want to further alienate them. Like if you have insomnia, and then you read a book about how important sleep is for your health and your immune system and creativity and cognition. And then you're just like, oh, now I'm now I feel even worse about my insomnia. Now I'm even more stressed out about sleeping. Like that was not the intended effect. So I think he since kind of dialed it back um, in terms of his his warnings, but it's really terrific. It's super well researched. And it's actually a great audiobook for even listening to while going to sleep. Because it um, I don't know if he's the reader, but it has this really great reader. And somehow listening to a sleep book while falling asleep is <laughs> like is a really pleasurable. So that would be the book I would recommend, Why We Sleep. I can't tell if that's like a good thing for the author or a bad thing that like listening to their book puts you to sleep. I mean, it's great. I guess it fits because it's a book about sleep. He said, um, yeah, but, I think, I, think, yeah. I do think he was the reader. He said, um, if he said when he was reading it, he said, unlike, and I'm sure he was changing this from the text, which probably said, if you fall asleep while reading this book, but in the audiobook, he says like, Unlike other authors who might take offense if you fall asleep while reading their book, I will take it as the greatest compliment. He has a British accent. I will take it as the greatest compliment if you fall asleep while reading this book. You know, so it is kind of like, that's why it's kind of great to listen to falling asleep to it. That is awesome. So wrapping up with our last question that I know you have to go. Our last question is, what advice do you have for teenagers? Oh, I love this. Um, well, I don't know if teenagers were going to listen to advice that they hear from me because I'm a grown up now, but I don't actually know when advice sticks and when it doesn't. But a couple things come to mind. One is being weird is awesome. And I, I feel like there's a lot of social pressure to to fit in and probably especially with social media. And there's just so much information at everybody's fingertips and I just think it's awesome to be weird. And if you don't feel like you're like other other people, just trust that there's other people out there that are also weird. And maybe you haven't found your people yet, but it's it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be weird. And I think the people that grow up to be the most interesting and to contribute the most probably felt kind of weird and different as a teenager. So I would just say, yeah, that would be my advice is accept if you're, if you're weird, accept it, embrace it and know that, you, you know, the world is bigger than whatever particular community you're in. And if you haven't found your people yet, you you will find them later. Well, thank you so much, Newman, for coming on the show. I I really enjoyed our discussion. Before we go, 
Do you have any social media or a website for people who want to check out more of your stuff? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. I also enjoyed the conversation. Um, my website is sarahwnewman.com. Um, people didn't get a, a real glimpse into this, but I am an artist in addition to being an AI researcher and stuff, but you can see a, a range of my stuff there. So it's sarahwnewman.com. And then I'm on social media at sarahwnewman. Um, yeah. Even though most people call me Newman, which you obviously already knew. Um yeah, thanks, Taylor. And also my lab, my the work, lab I work at at Harvard is called MetaLab, so people can find me there. That's MetaLab at Harvard, uh, which is part of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard also. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hopefully all of you guys enjoyed it. If you liked it, please rate and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at aimingthenumber4moon. If you go to our website, aimingforthemoon.com, you can find links to our merch, the Lessons from Interesting People newsletter, and other episodes and bios of our guests. Yeah, if you want to see any of my other meanderings, go to taylorgledsoe.com. And with that, again, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to set your sights high and aim for the moon. Aim for the moon.